morning, everybody. Good morning. It's good to be here with y'all. My name's Tim Greeno. I'm one of the pastors here at Walnut Creek. And uh, if you're new with us this morning, we want to say welcome. It's great to have you worshiping uh, with us this morning. I wanted to mention, I, I think most of you probably realize, Easter's coming up next weekend, next Sunday. Uh, so we would definitely encourage and invite you all to come back and worship with us on Easter Sunday. Also bring your family, your friends, your coworkers, uh, whoever. We're going to have uh, our normal service times next Sunday morning. We'll, we'll be here 9 and 1030. Uh, so definitely join us for that. But I also wanted to mention this Friday night, we're going to have our Good Friday service right here at 6 p.m. So Good Friday, this Friday, we'll be here at 6 p.m. And, and we're going to have a really unique and special time uh, together just contemplating the death of Christ. And so we are uh, excited to to just be focused and, and reflecting on the death of Christ that has purchased our salvation. And we're going to do that together Friday night. I wanted to mention for those of you who are parents, especially uh, those of you who have young kids, for our Good Friday service, this Friday at 6, we will only have the nursery up and running. So that means uh, your older kids would be uh, with you in the service, uh, and then infants, you can check into the nursery if you'd like to do that on Good Friday. Okay, uh, but definitely uh, would encourage you even this week just to be praying um, and inviting those that you know who may not know Christ, uh, be inviting them in, okay, and we'll join together Friday and Sunday. Now today we're going to be continuing to move towards the crucifixion of Christ. We are in Luke 23. If you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and get it out, get it opened up. We're going to be zooming in on a part of the, the narrative of the crucifixion of Christ that I think is often overlooked, okay? And it's Jesus preaching one last time to the crowds before his death. And our text, we will begin just in the Word of God together. You can follow along with me as we read, but our text goes like this. As they led him away, as they led Jesus away... They seized Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming in from the country, and they laid the cross on him to carry behind Jesus. A large crowd of people followed him, including women who were mourning and lamenting him. But turning to them, Jesus, he said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Look, the days are coming when they will say the women without children, the wombs that never bore, the breasts that never nursed are fortunate. And then they will begin to say to the mountains fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? That's our text and we're going to study it together today. But before we do that, I'm going to invite you all to take just a minute or two here and put your heads together with the neighbor and begin our time in prayer. It's important for us, I think, just for our hearts even, when we approach the Word of God, it is so important that our heart posture is right. And one of the ways that we can help each other in that is to pray for one another, pray with one another. So why don't you take uh, just two minutes here with a neighbor. You can turn to each other, lift each other up in prayer, be praying for each other's hearts, be praying for our time today to really honor God and to be worshipful. Uh, and then I'll pray with all of us, and we'll be on our way studying the text together. Okay? On your marks, get set, and pray.
Heavenly Father, we, we come to you this morning, God, as weak people in need of your grace. Lord, we, we do declare how awesome are your ways, God, and, and how majestic is your name, God. And yet, oftentimes, our hearts are way more consumed with satisfying, gratifying our own flesh than they are in declaring your praises and glorifying your name, God. And we pray, Lord, that we would be changed, that we would be convicted, that we would be shaped according to your will, God. Lord, teach us even in the preaching of Christ to come to you, to draw near to you, God. To find life in you, God. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, in the United States, the average time it takes between someone being sentenced to death and then someone actually being executed is approximately 20 years. It takes about 20 years between the time somebody uh, is sentenced to the death penalty as a result of, of a particularly heinous crime to the point when they actually face the death sentence. 20 years of, of meals, of, of memories, of appeals oftentimes, of time to think. 20 years between the time that a jury finds the man guilty and the time he actually faces the death that he has been sentenced to. And that time between the courtroom and the chair, it's something that we call death row. Jesus did not get 20 years on death row. Jesus got about 20 minutes. Okay, in our passage today, it gives us a window into the time that Jesus spent on death row, the time between the courtroom and the crucifixion. Our passage today, it's, it's sandwiched right in between those two things, the courtroom and the crucifixion. And we're getting a window through our text into the road to crucifixion that Jesus walked. And along the road to the crucifixion, there are three major things that we come across in this scene. Okay? A Cyrenian, a crowd, and a call. And this forms the outline that we will walk through our text today through. A Cyrenian, a crowd, and a call. And it's how Jesus spends these last few precious moments that he has before the cross. And, and as we observe this text and we study it together, my hope is that we will see the selflessness of Christ, the unending selflessness of Christ, and the single-minded devotion of God to bring sinners into right relationship with Him, even to the end. Now, probably the piece of this text that is most familiar to us, it is where it begins. It's in verse 26. Luke 23, verse 26 it says this, and I think this is memorable for most of us. As they led Jesus away, they seized Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming in from the country, and they laid the cross on him to carry behind Jesus. As Jesus is being led to the crucifixion, they, they stop this man Simon, a Cyrenian, and they lay the crossbeam of Christ upon Simon, and they have him follow behind Jesus, carrying the cross to the site of the crucifixion, where the vertical post of the cross would have already been fixed, set in place. Okay? And there's three things that we want to observe here. First, the crossbeam of Christ, it was bore by Simon of Cyrene. Now, Cyrene, it was a, a Roman-occupied area, 
in North Africa. Cyrene was the capital city of a pro- province of the Roman Empire in North Africa. And so first of all, we wonder, as we see this man, Simon, being stopped and, and the cross beam laid upon him, we wonder, what is he doing in Jerusalem? Why is this man from North Africa here in Jerusalem? And more than likely, Simon, it's a Jewish name, and so more than likely, Simon, a Jew, was here in Jerusalem for the Passover. Okay? And at this point in time, when Simon is stopped and they force him to carry the cross of Christ, we have no reason to believe that Simon at this point was a follower of Christ. There's nothing to indicate that Simon was a follower of Christ at this point in time. And this is important for us to recognize because there's a lot of connections we could make. You know, just the idea of carrying the cross of Christ, following Jesus. There's a lot of connections that we could potentially make, and yet we need to be careful with those. Because we need to recognize there's really no indication that Simon is even a follower of Jesus at this point in time. And yet, there is a pretty good argument to make that Simon eventually does come to follow Christ. Okay, In Mark 15, this is the exact same situation Mark is recording for us. And in Mark 15, verse 21, it says this about Simon. It gives us a little extra detail about this man, Simon of Cyrene. It says, they forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus's cross. And so again, we we get this idea of a man being forced to carry the cross of Christ. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And the fact that Mark clarifies, this is Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, that is a strange detail. It's almost like Mark wants, he he anticipates his readers to come across that and say, oh, that's Simon. Yeah, we know him, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And Simon and and Alexander, they're relatively common names, okay? It's kind of like Todd or Bob. But Rufus is not a common name. Rufus, in fact, only appears twice in the entire Bible, The other place where Rufus is mentioned is in Romans chapter 16. So remember, we have Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Rufus is only mentioned one other place. It is in Romans 16. Paul, he's writing to the church in Rome. And we remember Simon and his family, they're under Roman rule. Okay. Paul's writing to the church in Rome. And he's dishing out greetings to the believers by name. And he says this in Romans 16 verse 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. And also his mother and mine. Or most translations they say something like this. Greet his mother who has also been like a mother to me. And the point is this. We can't say it definitively. But there is a really good case to make that this man, Simon. He was so impacted by his encounter with Christ. That he and his family eventually do genuinely come to follow Jesus, to know and to follow Jesus, and become dear parts of the church in Rome. Now, the fact that this situation even takes place at all, where they interrupt this man, Simon, who's just minding his own business, walking on the road, the fact that it even takes place at all, and they strap the crossbeam upon him, it is odd because our second observation is this. Most criminals bore their own crossbeam. If you were a criminal... Sentenced to death by crucifixion by the Romans, the the typical pattern would have been those 
criminals would bear their own cross on the way to the site of the crucifixion. They would bear their own cross beam and they would carry that to the site where that vertical post would have already been fixed and set in place. And then all they needed to do was put the cross beam on, hang the criminal upon the cross, and then leave them there stripped and humiliated to suffocate and to die. But Jesus didn't carry his own crossbeam. That's observation number three. Jesus did not carry his own crossbeam to the site of his crucifixion. And the question, obviously, is why not? Why was Jesus unique? Why did he not carry his own crossbeam? And in this passage in Luke, I would say this is the most notable omission in Luke's writing about the crucifixion of Jesus. Luke, he skips over what explains why Jesus does not carry his own cross. And the other writers of the gospel, they all address the reason why Jesus is not carrying his own cross. They all tell us why Jesus is not carrying his own cross. And the reason is that right before this, Jesus was bloodied and beaten within an inch of his life. He was humiliated, mocked, and then scourged by the Romans. And I'm going to read for us Matthew's account in Matthew 27. If you've got a Bible, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to work through Matthew's account of the road to the crucifixion. But I want us to notice the similarities with Luke's writing, but also what Luke omits from his accounting of the crucifixion and the road to the crucifixion. So in Matthew chapter 27, we're going to start in verse 24. Okay. Matthew 27, verse 24, says this. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but a riot was starting instead, he took some water, he washed his hands in front of the crowd, and he said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. All of the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And then he released Barabbas to them. But after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into headquarters and they gathered the whole company around him. See, Luke doesn't tell us about this. They stripped him. They dressed him in a scarlet military robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head. They placed a reed in his right hand. They knelt down before him. They mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews. They spit on him. They took the reed. They kept hitting him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him. They put his clothes on him. They led him away to be crucified. The reason that Jesus was not carrying his own cross is that he was flogged, he was scourged, he was beaten and bloodied within an inch of his life. That's what precedes the road to the crucifixion. It's why Simon is carrying his cross. Now Luke, he would have known about this part of the narrative. Okay? Luke, he, he carefully investigated everything that happened in the life and the preaching and the ministry of Jesus. He is not going to miss this detail. But he chose to leave it out. 
And we don't know exactly what Luke's motive is in leaving out this piece of the narrative, but we do know the effect that it has. And the effect that it has that Luke omits this piece of the beating, the humiliation, the mocking of Jesus, the effect that it has is that it lifts up and highlights the part that he does include. Luke omitting the flogging of Jesus, it highlights for us, it emphasizes for us the piece that only Luke writes about, which is what we have in the last five verses of our passage today. It's a piece of the the narrative, a piece of Jesus' time on death row that only Luke gives to us. And it's in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 27. This is this. A large crowd of people followed him, including women who were mourning and lamenting him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Look, the days are coming when they will say, The women without children, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed, they are fortunate. And then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen When it is dry, only Luke gives us the final sermon of Jesus preached to the crowds before his death. And there's two pieces of this that we need to get our heads wrapped around, okay? The crowd and the call. There is a crowd here, and there is a clear call from Jesus. And the first thing we need to understand is the crowd. There is a crowd here, and we need to understand a few things about this crowd so that we can make sense out of the preaching of Jesus, So Luke 23, verse 27, says this about the crowd. A large crowd of people followed him, including women who were mourning and lamenting him. There's this crowd of women that is trailing behind Jesus, mourning and lamenting him. And I think on first glance, if you're anything like me, we read this and like we automatically picture sweet Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene, these women who followed Jesus faithfully ministering to him as he ministered to them and we picture them weeping over the bloodied beaten Jesus but I'm going to give you two reasons why I don't think that's the right way to picture the crowd okay I don't think that's who Jesus is speaking to first look at verse 28 but turning to them This crowd of weeping, wailing women. He says, daughters of Jerusalem. Daughters of Jerusalem. Now that is an odd statement to make. Because the women who followed Jesus, Mary, Mary Magdalene, they were Galileans. They were women from Galilee. And in verse 49, that's exactly how Luke is going to refer to them. He says, they were there. These women who were from Galilee, they were there observing crucifixion of Christ. And so it would have been really odd to suddenly hear for Jesus to call them daughters of Jerusalem. They weren't from Jerusalem. And that's the first reason why I don't think that's, it's the right way for us to picture this crowd of women as as followers of Jesus. But secondly, it's what he says to them. He says, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. You see, that statement, it's not a statement of comfort to women who have ministered to Jesus. 
as he is heading to the cross, it's a warning. It's a warning to a crowd of scoffers. And most likely, it's a crowd of women who have been paid as professional mourners, professional wailers, to cause a scene at the crucifixion of Christ. And so Jesus, he's preaching to the crowd of scoffers one last time. And as he preaches, he has a call for them. It is a call to repentance that comes through a proclamation of judgment. It's a warning. A warning about coming judgment. And through that, Jesus is calling them to repentance. And the way that he calls them to repentance it's with a warning for the city of Jerusalem and the destruction that's coming their way because of sin. He says, look, the days are coming when they will say, verse 29, the days are coming when they will say, the women without children, the wombs that never bore, the breasts that never nursed, they are fortunate. And then they'll begin to say to the mountains, fall on us into the hills, cover us. He's quoting Hosea chapter 10, verse 8. Hosea 10, it's a, it is a chapter warning of coming judgment to Jerusalem. And he says, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? He's saying, if this, if crucifying Jesus, if this is what they do to the one who is innocent, imagine what the Gentiles are going to do when they come in and they stand against you who are guilty. He says, if this is what the Romans, if this is what... Gentiles can do to an innocent man. Imagine what Gentiles will do to you, Jerusalem. You sinful, wicked people. And he's warning them about the judgment of God that is going to come against the city at the hands of the Gentiles. He's preaching a warning. Now in the Gospel of Luke alone, Luke records at least... Six different warnings that Jesus preached against Jerusalem in his teachings. In Luke 11, twice in Luke 13, in Luke 19, in Luke 21, and again here finally in Luke 23. And the warning in Luke 21, it's almost identical to the warning here in Luke 23. I'm going to read it for us very quickly. But Luke 21, starting in verse 20, it says, When you see Jerusalem, this is Jesus preaching again to the Jews. He says, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, recognize that its desolation has come near. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those inside the city must leave it. And those who are in the country must not enter it. Because these are days of vengeance to fulfill all the things that are written. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath against the people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jesus preached often a warning of coming judgment against the city of Jerusalem. And what we have in Luke 21, what we have in Luke 23, it is a call to repentance by proclamation of coming judgment of God. It is a call to repentance by a proclamation of God's judgment that is coming. And Jesus is proclaiming that God's judgment is going to come against Jerusalem because of their sin, which it does. God's judgment does come against Jerusalem. In 70 AD, the city is besieged. The temple is destroyed. 
But these warnings, I want us to see this with clarity. These warnings, the proclamation of Christ about the coming judgment of God, it is not just intended to condemn. Jesus is preaching on the road to the crucifixion about judgment because he is calling these crowds of people who have mocked and humiliated and beaten him. He is calling them into repentance that they might actually have life through him. He's calling them to repent so that instead of God's judgment, they will actually experience life in the Lord. Now you might look at Luke 23 and say, wait a minute. I don't see a call to repentance in here. All I see is a proclamation of judgment. It's just Jesus telling them what's going to happen. You're going to be destroyed. How is this a call to repentance? But here's what we need to understand. Proclamations of judgment are always an invitation from God for repentance. God proclaiming his judgment in advance, warning us, telling us that his judgment is coming. It is always an invitation from God for repentance. And in repentance, it's an invitation to life, not death. Okay, consider Jonah and his preaching. We preached through the book of Jonah a couple years ago, if you were with us, maybe you remember this. But what did Jonah actually preach as he was sent out by God to go preach to the, the city of Nineveh? This is what he preached. Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. The prophet Jonah, who God brought to Nineveh to call them to repentance. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city. And he proclaimed, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. In the original language, it was, it was just five words. And all it is, is a proclamation. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. There's no invitation, no specific invitation for repentance. Just a statement of judgment. But here's how they respond. Then the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. And the judgment of God was abated from the city of Nineveh. They repented because they understood that even in a proclamation of judgment, the very fact that, that judgment is warned, that it's proclaimed ahead of time, it is evidence of God's patience that you have time to repent. The warning of coming judgment is an invitation from God for repentance that you might actually live, be spared from judgment. God is giving you time to repent. And this passage here in Luke 23, it's the very last preaching of Jesus before his death on the cross. And even up to the very last moment, Jesus is proclaiming the warning of God's coming judgment so that even those who stood and mocked him, scoffed at him, and hung him on a cross, that even they might repent and come to life in Christ. And you see, God has extended that same invitation of repentance to you and to me. The same warning of the coming judgment of God and the very same invitation into repentance and life in Christ. You see, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul, he warns us. 2 Corinthians 5.10, he says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There is a time coming 
when every human being will actually stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. God's judgment is going to come on human beings. And in preaching that, the point is not to condemn and, and simply leave people to die. Instead, the point... Why did Paul warn us about the, the coming judgment of Christ? That we're going to have to actually stand in judgment before God. It's because it's an invitation to repent while there's time. Jesus warned in Matthew 12, I tell you, on the day of judgment. And Jesus is no liar. He says, on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word that they speak. For by your words you will be acquitted. And by your words you will be condemned. Jesus warns about coming judgment. He says, there is a judgment coming. And those who are careless in their words, they will be judged according to their words. And they will face condemnation. Be sentenced to hell on the basis of words. And in John 5, he warns, it's not just your words to be judged by. It's your actions too. In John 5, 26, he says, just as the Father has life in himself, so also he has granted to the Son to have life in himself. And he's granted him, not just life, but also the right to pass judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good things... They will come out to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. He's preaching judgment. The resurrection of condemnation. What is he talking? He's talking about eternal death. Jesus warned about the coming judgment of God, not just to Jerusalem, but to you and to me. And God's judgment will come against us on the basis of our words and our actions. He says elsewhere, even the thoughts of man will be exposed to the judgment of God. And you might say, but wait a minute. What about the cross? Like, it, Did Jesus forget about the cross here? We're not going to be judged, are we? But here's what you have to understand. Jesus preached judgment in order to point us to the cross. Because in the proclamation of God's coming judgment, we have an invitation to repentance and life through Christ. Jesus preached judgment because preaching judgment, it is the way that God calls sinners into repentance without understanding the judgment of, of God, without understanding the guilt of our sin, without understanding that we actually are accountable and responsible before a just and holy God. There is no invitation to repentance. And you see, here's what Jesus wanted to understand with great clarity one last time as he preaches to the crowds of scoffers and sinners. He doesn't preach how to be a good person. Do you see that? He doesn't preach to this crowd of sinners how to be a good person. He doesn't preach how they can help the poor. He doesn't preach the importance of prayer and being in the word of God. Those are all wonderful, incredible things that we should teach about. We must preach about. But all of those things, they mean absolutely nothing 
If sinners do not first understand the coming judgment of God and their need for repentance. And when Jesus preaches for the last time, he preaches judgment because in preaching judgment, it is an invitation for the very people in front of him who stand condemned to repent and find life in Jesus. And the beautiful promise of God is this. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says this. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. That's judgment. But look at verse 4. But God. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us. Made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. That only comes through repentance and faith in Christ. And we can only repent and put faith in Christ when we understand the coming judgment of God. We need to see that we are dead in sin. But God has invited us to life through Christ. Colossians 2 verse 13 And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, this is judgment, a warning. He made you alive with him and forgave us all of our trespasses. He erased, listen to this. As we think about the cross, we think about Jesus moving to the cross. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us, opposed to us, the mountain of our sin debt crushed us. But he has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Think about this. On the road to the crucifixion, Jesus, he's preaching judgment to the very people who are about to put the nails that erase our certificate of debt through his hands and through his feet. He is inviting them into life. He's calling them in to repentance. They are about to put the very nails that erase the mountain of our debt. And he's preaching judgment to them because he loves them dearly and he wants them to understand they need repentance. They need Christ. It's an invitation for mercy. And as we close this morning, our application is really, it's just a question. How are you responding to Jesus' warning of coming judgment? How are you responding to it? And I know most of you, at some point in your life, you have heeded the warning of Christ. And you've turned to Christ. But I also know some of you have not. And I want you to know that the warning of God's judgment, it is not just condemnation. It is an invitation into life. It's an invitation into mercy through repentance and faith in Christ. The question is this, how are you responding to this warning, to his invitation? And it seems like there's really only a handful of options that we have. One is we can ignore it. We can walk in ignorance to the coming judgment of God. We really can. We can choose to ignore it and live like God is not real. We can choose to live as though God's judgment really isn't coming. There are times in my own sin when I just want to 
pull the wool over my own eyes and pretend that God's judgment isn't coming. Or there are times I think about my relationships with other people. Or I just want to ignore the fact that God's judgment is actually coming and they need Christ. And I think before I came to Christ, there's a huge part of me that just, I don't want to deal with death and I don't want to deal with anything that comes after death. It's scary and I don't want to deal with it. So I'm just going to choose to live in ignorance. Set it aside and do what I want to do. Just pretend. Or we can live in indignation. We can just straight up reject God. We can live in anger towards God, reject the idea of God's judgment, be bitter about God's judgment, be bitter about the fact that we are responsible before this God. We can harbor anger towards the Lord. And through that, I mean, we can allow that to justify all kinds of sin and selfishness in our lives. Bitterness justifies all kinds of selfish acts and sinful acts. We can reject any responsibility we have before the Lord, reject His judgment altogether. Or we can live in indifference. Indifference to the coming judgment of God. And I think indifference is particularly dangerous because we can have no problem like ascribing to the ideas of Christianity. It's all good. It just doesn't actually move me. And you see, indifference is so dangerous because it's a close counterfeit. It's a close counterfeit to faith. Like ascribing to the ideas, being okay with the ideas of Christianity is a really close counterfeit to real faith in Christ. I think there might be some of you here today where you would have no problem agreeing with the idea of God's coming judgment. But does your life make sense in light of it? There can be an indifference to God's judgment and an indifference to Christ. And you see, in all of these responses, ignorance, indignation, indifference, and for what it's worth, they can all be me. They can all be my response to Jesus. But they're all empty. They're all absolutely bankrupt and lifeless. Quite frankly, they're miserable. And they will empty your heart of worship for Christ and keep you trapped. So what is the response we must have to God's coming judgment, the offer of repentance? There's only one response that makes sense. It is repentance and faith marked by worshipful obedience to Christ. The only response that makes sense when we understand that God's judgment is coming The only response that makes sense is repentance and faith marked by worshipful obedience to Christ. Because in Jesus, God, he crushed his innocent son in order to deliver your salvation. All of the wrath and the judgment of God, that mountain of debt that our sin had created, that stands against us. God's wrath, which is absolutely going to crush us. All of it was completely poured out 
nailed to the cross. The certificate of debt was erased, nailed to the cross. All of God's wrath poured out on sweet, innocent, silent Jesus. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When we understand that God's judgment is coming, and then we see Christ on the cross and we recognize he took the very punishment that my sin has earned, the only response that makes sense is that we would repent, we would turn away from our sin, we would turn towards Christ, and in a heart of worship, we would obey Him and follow Him. We, we would live lives that make sense in light of eternity, in light of the fact that God's judgment is coming. You see, when I see my neighbor, the coming judgment of God should move me to live and to speak differently than I would if there was no judgment of God. When I spend time with my family, when I treat my kids, when I deal with my kids, the very fact that God's judgment is coming and Christ has made a way for our salvation, that truth, it should move me to worshipful obedience of Jesus and it should mark my interactions in every arena of life. The only option we have in light of the coming judgment of God it is to turn to Christ, to worship and to follow Him through faith in the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross to pay for our sin. And as we close this morning, we're going to take a few minutes here in communion Reflecting on that reality and on that truth. Because in communion, God, He's given us these physical elements. That His coming judgment and the salvation that Jesus offers on the cross would never escape us. That it would never become dull to us. He's given us these physical elements that we might commune with Him and with one another very uniquely through the body and blood of Jesus. There are communion elements under your seat in front of you. If you want it, you can go ahead and grab those elements now. In this time of communion, it is a time for believers. And so if you are a believer in Christ, I would invite you to join us and to just affirm one another through the elements of the cross, through the body of Jesus given and broken for us, through the blood of Christ shed for us. But if you're not yet a believer then I would just tell you communion is not yet for you. And our hope and prayer is this, that you would understand God's judgment is coming and you would repent and worship Jesus. And it will be a sweet day when you do commune with us. But if you are not a believer, then the elements are not yet for you, okay? For those of you who are believers, let's go ahead and spend a few minutes Worshiping Christ through communion as we take those elements. I'm going to pray for us, and then you can spend some time reflecting in prayer with one another. And then we'll close with one uh, couple last songs here of, of worship and praise together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blood of Christ. We thank you, God, that Jesus, he's preaching even all the way to the very end. Just selflessly pouring out and preaching 
about your coming judgment so that even those who put the very nails through his hands and feet, that they would know your judgment is real and it's coming, but the cross, through the cross, it is the only way that the certificate of debt can be erased. Lord, help us rejoice in that truth today. Let us be men and women whose lives are, are, are shaped and marked by the cross, God, by repentance, by worship, by following you, God. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.